All right. Now, can we turn this into a sermon? All right. Luke chapter 24. Let's begin with a word of prayer, can we? Lord, thank you again for the privilege of looking into your word. And Lord, your, your word is our authority. And we ask that your word would authoritatively speak to us tonight and communicate to our hearts. Lord, this message will be simple and practical as we looked last night at the mission of God and we look tonight at the Bible basis of that mission. I pray that you'll speak directly to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see tonight what we looked at last night, that God is on a mission to reveal His glory and extend His grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. I hope you have that memorized by the time we get to the end of the, of the conference this week. And I want to add one more thing to that before we move on here, and that is that God is going to accomplish that mission. Whether we participate or we are involved or not, God is going to finish what He started. God's purposes will not fail. The counsel of the Lord shall never be confused or, or ended. God will accomplish what He has, has set out to do. I want us to look in Luke chapter 24 here tonight, um, and I want to speak to you just as an, as an introduction here on what is called sometimes the Christological focus of the Scripture. Uh, Jesus in this chapter encounters two groups of people. The first begins in verse 13. We're not going to read all of this, of course. <clears throat> but in verse 13, he encounters the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And in the conversation with them, they begin to explain to him their disillusionment, their discouragement, that the one they believed would, would restore Israel to its rightful place in this world had been crucified and buried. And they're very disheartened over this. And so Jesus begins to speak to these two disciples in verse 25. And if you'll look at that with me, please, it says, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, I wish I had time in this chapter to point out all the references. We're going to look at two or three of them. But all the references to the Word of God. And that's the first one. They were slow to believe what the prophets had spoken. Now, the word fools here doesn't, is not the same use of the word that we are commanded by God, uh, by Jesus not to use as he gave the Sermon on the Mount. But this word fools simply means neglect to accept and believe what you have heard. They had been taught what the prophets had written and what the prophets had spoken, but something was not connecting between what they were told and what was happening in this particular story. Verse 26, Jesus says about what the prophets spoke, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? If you knew and believed what the Bible says, is what Jesus is saying, you would know this had to happen just like this. You wouldn't be disheartened or disillusioned. And then verse 27 is the powerful reference here. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Those last two words are key in that verse right there. The word expounded in that verse, that is the only use of that verb in all of the Gospels. Wouldn't you have enjoyed hearing the sermon Jesus preached right there as he taught himself out of the word of God? Wouldn't that have been a powerful sermon? So he's showing them that the books of the Pentateuch and the books of the prophets, uh, it's all about Jesus. 
It is the Christological focus of the scripture. There's a second group that he encountered later in the chapter, and that starts in about verse 30, uh, 35. He appeared, 34, they appeared, he appeared to them. Um, and, they, and they supposed it was a spirit, verse 37, they were, they were troubled. <clears throat> but in verse 44, Jesus begins a similar reference. It says, and he said unto them, these are the apostles now, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and then here he adds, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. So once again, he takes the, 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 the disciples, the apostles, through this journey of the Word of God, and he is focusing on himself in the Scriptures. In verse 46, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So here's what we're accused of. Now, you Christians and you, you Bible thumpers, you can find Jesus all over the Bible. And my response to that is, yes, sir, we absolutely can. <laughs> because here in Luke 24, Jesus places himself all over the Bible. He's found in every book, he's found in every chapter, he's found on every page. The whole story of the Bible is the story of God's mission to reveal His glory and extend His grace through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, He is anticipated. In the Gospels, He is manifested. In Acts, He is proclaimed. In the Epistles, He is explained. And in the Revelation, it will be the consummation of the story of God and His mission. Aren't you glad to be part of this story? Now, I want you to note something else here. I stopped at the end of verse 46. And what Jesus is saying is if you knew the Scriptures, you would know that Christ had to suffer and die and that He will rise on the third day or He would rise on the third day. <clears throat> but don't miss the first two words of verse 47. And that. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus went beyond just the focus of the Old Testament Scriptures and what they were about to the fact and the command that that message has to be proclaimed to every nation on earth. Now, here's what we're guilty of sometimes. We're guilty of rejoicing in what Christ has done for us and, and, and thank, being thankful and grateful for our salvation, but failing and stopping short of sharing that with the rest of the world. Hudson Taylor was back in England on a furlough, you might call it, visiting a church in Brighton Beach, England, on the south coast, right, uh, right there at the, um, at the, at the, uh, the, cha- the English Channel. And, and he, he walked out on Brighton Beach. He was in a church service, and he walked out of the church service and went out and walked on the beach. And later he writes about that in his book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, or the book written by his son. And in his own testimony about that experience, he said these words, He said, I could no longer stand to be in a service where a thousand believers were rejoicing in their salvation while half the heathen world has still never heard his name. So Jesus is saying the whole of Scripture finds its focus in both the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the mission to the nations which flows out of that event. 
Why did he come and die and rise again? Not just so we would know, but so that we would take the message we know and preach it among all nations. And let me show you what happened to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Look at verse 32. After Jesus vanished from their midst, in verse 32, they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Do you know what would happen in the heart of every believer if the power of Jesus' message in the Psalms, the prophets, and the books of Moses were to become deeply real in our hearts, we would talk about that message. We would spread that message. Are you with me so far? You see, the church is to be on mission with God. The focus of the entire Word of God is Christ, and the message of Christ is to be preached among all nations. I think you'll agree with this statement right here. The Bible is the basis of missions. How many agree with that? Say amen. Would you also agree with this statement? That the mission is the basis of the Bible. That's what Jesus is teaching us right here in Luke 24. This whole thing is about the mission of God, and the Bible is written to unfold the mission of God, and we walk all the way through that story, and we find out what the purpose of the mission of God is to get the gospel to the nations. So the church has to be on mission. Here's what I want to focus on for the rest of this message. Why should we be on mission? And I apologize for the the font uh, distortion there. Uh, We'll get that fixed for the next one. That's my fault. Why should we be on mission? Number one, I want to give you, by the way, I want to give you, I think it's uh, 12 reasons why we should be on mission. And don't get nervous. We're still going to get out on time. It will not be an hour and a half sermon, uh, contrary to what the pastor told Brother Smothers. Um, I I preached a sermon in my church in Ohio one time uh, on a Sunday morning, and I had 24 points. And it was about a 45, maybe a 50-minute sermon. And I kind of felt bad for having so many points. So I came back on Sunday night, and I said to my people, because my sermon this morning had so many points, my sermon tonight will be pointless. All right? So, but tonight's sermon's not pointless. All right? I got 12 of them. We're going to go through them right here. This is very practical and very simple, and, 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 and you won't hear anything tonight that's going to, that's going to shake you to your boots, but I hope you'll be stirred by these simple thoughts as we look at why we should be on mission. Number one, because of God's promise to bless all peoples. It was mentioned in the video Brother Ward showed a few minutes ago in the land where Abraham began, but in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and I'm putting a lot of scripture on the screen because we won't have time to turn to all of these, but in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is where God called Abraham, and, the, and I referred to this, I think, last night. But he said, I will make of thee a great nation and bless thee and make thy name great. And at the end of verse 3, he said, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's not expressing God's hope. It's not exp- expressing God's dream of a great future. It is expressing a promise that God is making that through this man, Abraham, Every nation, you look up the word in that verse right there, it's the same word that we talk about ethnicities and people groups and tribes and kindreds that are mentioned in Revelation 5 and 7. In in this, we find God's promise through Abraham that every kindred, tribe, and tongue will be touched by the blessing that will come from God. This is something, and this is so ironic because pastor at the end of the service last night in his prayer, I believe it was, said, you have promised to accomplish this. 
Now, here's the question in, in this first point. What better motivation and encouragement can we have than the understanding that this is the mission of God and it is a sure thing? This is not my mission. This is not Pastor, uh, Pastor Henry's idea. This is not something a bunch of Baptists got together and thought, you know, we got a great thing going here. Let's, let's tell other people about it. This is God's mission. And let me tell you something else about that. It's not our responsibility to accomplish it. It's our responsibility to join in on what God is doing. It's not our burden to reach the world. It's our privilege and opportunity to join with God in reaching the world. But this is his gig, right? This is his deal. And don't you want to be part of something that is already promised to succeed? If you were in the military, and I don't think it works quite like this, so this is a made-up illustration, okay? But if you were in the military and your commanding officer called you in, he said, I got two envelopes right here, and these envelopes each represent a mission, and I'm going to let you choose. This mission is to, and he tells you where it is and what's, what's got to be accomplished and how long it might take, and this mission is to, and he tells you where that is and, and where it's, what, what's got to be accomplished and how long that might take. He says, now this mission right here is a bit more dangerous. It has a 19% probability of success. And this mission here has a 98.5% probability of success. And you're standing there waiting, which one will you take? Right? I'll grab the 98.5. Well, I got one even better than that for you. If you'll get in on mission with God, it is 100% guaranteed to succeed. Don't you want to be part of something like that? Amen? Number two, let's talk about this. Because of the purchase of Jesus. I love this thought. In Revelation 5, 9, I referred to last night. I don't know that we read it, but I quoted a bit from it. It says, they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Listen to this, this phrase right here, this last part. For thou wast slain... And, past tense, hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tribe, and tongue, uh, out of every kindred and tongue, rather, and people and nation. You know why we ought to get on mission with God? Because Jesus has already purchased them. There's nothing else that has to be done except for you and I to go with the gospel message of their redemption. Jesus has already purchased some from every tribe and nation. I believe, I think you do too, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient, was sufficient, and is sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. How many of you agree with me when I say this? Any man or woman can be saved. Do you also agree with this? Not every man or woman will be saved. But do you agree with this one? Some will be saved from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. The Father has promised they would be, and Jesus has purchased their redemption. So that means there is a purchased possession in Lebanon, in Syria, in South Sudan, in Liberia, in Ghana. There is a purchased possession in Iraq. There's a purchased possession in Kyrgyzstan, in Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. There's a purchased possession in Pakistan. You know what this means? This means that we have the wonderful privilege of helping to gather in those Jesus' blood has already bought and paid for. Don't you want to be part of that? Two Moravian missionaries, you probably have heard this, this illustration before, but two Moravian missionaries sold themselves into slavery 
because God burdened their hearts for a group in the West Indies that were slaves. And they could not go there as free men and reach into that people group, so they sold themselves as slaves. And they boarded a ship to, 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 from England to travel to the West Indies. And as they pulled away from the harbor, saying goodbye to their family and friends, one of these men cupped his hands around his mouth and uttered these words, May the Lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering. And I'm here to tell you tonight that the Lamb of God who incarnated himself into human form and lived a sinless life 33 and a half years or so on this earth and died a sinner's death for you and me deserves the reward of his suffering. Number three, because of the harvest. Matthew 9, 37, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. What a startling statement for the Lord to make. You see, this is a mission that has promised the success of God the Father. And the purchase possession has already been made. And, and here we are with the privilege of participating in it. And Jesus' uh, diagnosis of the mission at this point for the disciples, as he looked at this crowd of people scattered as sheep without a shepherd, his diagnosis was, we need more laborers. If you study missiology by those who do all kinds of research, you'll find, and we're going to talk about this tonight, Lord will, uh, tomorrow night, Lord willing, uh, there are 8.2 billion people on the planet. <clears throat> they say that one-third of the world is Christian, and that's a broad term, so that doesn't all, all mean, that doesn't mean every uh, one-third of the world is born-again believers. But they say one-third of the world is Christian. They say one-third of the world approximately is is under the sound of the gospel or has heard the gospel proclaimed at some point, and I, I kind of question that one. But if you break it down into the other third, we clearly have about 3 billion or more people in this world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, that's unacceptable. There shouldn't be anybody on this earth that hasn't heard the gospel. There shouldn't be any nation on this earth that hasn't heard the gospel. We're going to come back to that tomorrow night. But we're talking about people who are cut off from the gospel because of the lack of missionaries, the lack of scripture. But here's the great thought about this harvest. Uh, And I got ahead of myself talking about the labors are few because that's my next point. But here's the great thought about the harvest. The harvest is plenteous. And you know what this means? This means any missionary can go anywhere and find souls waiting to be brought into the kingdom. Isn't that comforting? Why would a person go on deputation and spend three, three and a half, four years raising funds and spending all kinds of money on hotels and food and gas and and all the expense that goes along with with deputation and then go to a field and not be sure that he'll ever reach anybody with the gospel? Jesus said the harvest is plenteous. There are people waiting. Now, if you go to Syria or Lebanon or Iraq, you're not going to send back newsletters and say we had 35 people saved last week. It's not going to happen that fast, right? It's going to happen slower. But any missionary can go anywhere with the gospel of Jesus Christ and be assured. Those who God promised to touch and those who Jesus paid for are waiting to hear the gospel and somebody, somebody somewhere is going to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Wow, I want to be part of that, don't you? 
A missionary is not one sent to gather a harvest, uh, or not one sent to, to, to gather a large harvest. He's just one sent with the message to reach the harvest that's already waiting. Uh, I thought about this, Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. Paul is at Corinth, and he's discouraged. He wants to leave Corinth because nobody's responding to the gospel. And, and the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision in Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. And, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but here's what he said. You stay right here, and you keep preaching. And, he, and this is a quote, For I have much people in this city. And when Paul looked around Corinth, I'm pretty sure at, at that statement from the Lord, he said, you do? I don't see any. Everybody I'm talking to, nobody wants to hear it. A thousand prostitutes come for, down from the Temple Mount in this city, this false temple in this city every night to ply their trade. This is a wicked, wicked place of gross immorality and perversion. And you have people in this city? What God was telling Paul was, yes, keep preaching because there are people who are going to respond. There is a harvest. Matthew 9, 37, let's look at the second part of that verse. Because the laborers are few. <clears throat> now, this is a big burden on my heart. It ought to be a big burden on your heart. But Jesus said the number one problem in gathering this harvest is we don't have enough laborers. I referred to the Moravians a moment ago. And do you know that at one point in history, the Moravians sent out one missionary for every four church members. They were serious about reaching the world. Today it takes about four churches to send out a missionary. More laborers are needed. And you know what that verse tells us? You know how we get laborers? Pray. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow night, so I'll, I'll wait for that. But someday, I, I want to say this, someday standing at the throne of God, as I talked about at the end of the message last night, with some from every kindred, tribe, and tongue, aren't we going to want to stand there knowing that we prayed for these people to be reached? We prayed for laborers to go among these people. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to be introduced to people groups at the throne of God and say, who are they? Never heard of them. I want to be able to say, I prayed for God to send people there. I prayed for God to send believers to the Palembang of Sumatra and, and the, the, uh, the uh, Twi speakers of Ghana and all over this world. I prayed for these people to have the gospel brought to them. That's the secret to getting laborers. I want to be part of that process, don't you? Next, let's talk about the destiny of the lost. Here's why we ought to be on mission, because of the destiny of the lost. Let me read these verses for you. He that... <clears throat> believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Notice the common theme in these verses. Belief in the name of the Son of God. John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 14.6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is really hard if you think about it. But there is no way for anyone to be saved outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? There is no, there is no uh, free pass for those who were sincere in their religion, though it were false. 
There is no other way than hearing specifically about Christ. There's no break for those who die without hearing that message. The scripture leaves no loopholes. Those living in ignorance of the gospel do not get a break because every man is born in sin and sin is only forgiven by Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is the answer and it's necessary for them to hear it. I was in a Baptist church like this one and talking about that subject and the, exclusive, uh, the exclusivity of the gospel and someone came up to me after the service and said, you said people who die without ever hearing the gospel, they've never had a chance. You said they die and go to hell. I said, yes, ma'am, that's what the Bible teaches. She said, I just can't buy that. Well, somebody might say, wouldn't it be better if they never heard rather than to hear and reject? Somebody's going to say this, how could a loving God send people to hell? Well, the answer to that is God doesn't send people to hell. Every person on this earth has enough light to respond to God. By creation and by conscience, and when you respond toward God with those two witnesses, God will see to it that you get more light to respond to. When you respond away from God, in spite of those two witnesses, your heart gets darker and darker and darker. I, I wish I had time to talk more about that, but I need, I need to move on. Um, there is enough witness for every man to bring him more light or condemn him to an eternity without God. So what does this do? Here's another question somebody says. Um, uh, how can God send innocent people to hell? The answer to that one is there are no innocent people, right? We're all born in sin. What does this do? This makes missions absolutely urgent. We have no alternative but to do whatever is necessary to get the gospel to those who haven't heard. Don't you want to be part of a mission that helps people escape the horrors of hell? Number six, are you still with me tonight? Because God chose men to tell. <clears throat> and can I just be honest with you? I don't really like this one. I wish God had chosen a more dependable method <laughs> because we're weak, aren't we? And we fail at every turn. But Romans 10, beginning in verse 14, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? You know, every time in the word of God you find someone coming to Christ, it is through the witness of a human, witness, a human messenger. In Acts chapter 8, the eunuch, you ever notice the common theme in these stories right here? The eunuch had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Well, if he's a worshiper, why does he need Philip to leave his citywide revival campaign in Samaria and go down to the desert? The guy's even reading in the book of Isaiah. I mean, what, what better place could you read in the prophets to talk about the, the, uh, the, the Son of God and the price that he paid for our sins? But he needed Philip to explain the story to him. He needed Philip, as Paul Harvey would say, to tell him the rest of the story. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is a God-fearing man. The testimony of God about this man. A God-fearing man, a giving man, a praying man. And Jesus appeared to him in a vision and could have told him himself what to do to be saved. Instead, he said, go get Peter and he'll tell you what to do. Because Cornelius needed Peter to tell him the rest of the story. In Acts chapter 16, Paul's in Asia Minor. 
And he wants to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit suffered him not. And he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia and said, Come over and help us. And he traveled five hours across the Aegean Sea, traveled to the city of Philippi, and outside the city of Philippi, by a river, where there's a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, which worshipped God. All these people are worshipers. They're all turning toward God. But they needed a human messenger to tell them the rest of the story. Uh, I think it would be great if there were some way that God could draw people to himself without having to depend on us. Someone asked this question one time. Um, if, if we fail in the mission of God, what is God's plan B? And the truth is God has no plan B. It's our responsibility. He chose us for his mission. Don't you want to be part of his mission? Number seven, because God uh, gave the church the responsibility. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, we have two phrases here, uh, two descriptions. Uh, In the end of verse 18, it speaks of the ministry of reconciliation, that he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. At the end of verse 19, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I kind of see that as the ministry is the assignment and the word is the message. In, in, in other words, he has told you what to do and he's given you what you need to accomplish what he's told you to do. And so verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5 says, Now then, we are ambassadors. It doesn't say we should try to be an ambassador. We should work up to being an ambassador. It says we are. We are God's ordained means for the gospel of Christ to reach the nation. God promised to reach them. Jesus purchased them. And he's commissioned us to gather them in for his glory. Don't you want to be part of a church committed to its responsibility? I love good fellowship, don't you? I love uh, good fellowship around food. We Baptists are known for that, right? And I always say that good food helps the fellowship digest better. I like it that way. But I don't want to be part of a social group. I want to be part of a church. And I don't want to just be part of any church. I want to be part of a church on mission with God. Do you? Number eight, because of the example of the early church. I love this passage in Acts 13, and there's a lot to talk about here, but but again, I've got 12 points, and I want to get through them. But I want you to notice in the middle of the verse there, it says, I'm sorry, at the beginning of verse 2, it says, as they ministered to the Lord. As they ministered to the Lord. Do you know what this church did? They made God their focus. What was, what was, it, what was the whole theme last night? The mission of God is to reveal His what? His glory. It isn't about us. It isn't about what our church can accomplish. It's about God and His glory. It's about us dedicating ourselves to bringing glory to the God we serve and love. And as this church in Antioch ministered to the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, unto the ministry whereunto I have called them. God called out missionaries from the church that was focused on propagating the glory of God. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? Every church ought to be focused on propagating the glory of God in their community and around the world. And every church should be sending out its own missionaries. And every church truly interested in the mission of God, God will call from that body of believers, laborers, for His harvest. I was pastoring and I closed our service 
one Sunday evening, um, and I asked my deacon, one of my deacons, sitting on the second row right down there. His name is Dan Stoner. And uh, he just called me a couple days ago. His wife passed away, and, and our hearts hurt for him. But Dan began to pray the Sunday night prayer of dismissal for our church service. And, and he prayed a couple of things that, you know, you would expect. Thank you for the day you've given us and the messages we heard, a couple of things like that. <clears throat> and then he just stopped praying right in the middle of his prayer. And I'm still standing behind the pulpit, and I kind of sneaked a peek. And I looked, and he was crying, and his lip was quivering. And when he, re, re, when he was able to get his composure, he said these words, And God, would you please send a missionary out of Westside Baptist Church? And I have to be very transparent with you. I was rebuked in my heart. I don't know that that prayer had ever been prayed out loud by anyone in our congregation. And, and I was ashamed of that fact. But I was so smitten and convicted when he said, God, please send a missionary out of here. About a year and a half later, I left the church to be a missionary. So I went back and asked him, were you trying to get rid of me when, when you prayed that? Because God really used that to speak to my heart, right? But you know what, you know what ought to be a great burden in the, in the heart of this church? God, call somebody right here. Call somebody right here. You've heard this phrase, God is still calling missionaries. We're just not all listening. But it is extremely possible, and, and I would never try to accomplish this with, with heart, our tear-jerking stories and heart-rending tales of great need around the world, but it's very possible God is speaking to somebody's heart right here tonight and calling you to a mission field somewhere. And you don't have to stand up and say it out loud at the end of this service, God's called me to the mission field, but here's my challenge. Would every person in this room tonight allow for that possibility? Don't say, I'm, I'm past my prime. Uh, I'm too old. Don't, don't make excuses. We'll preach about that a little later this week too, I guess. Number nine, because of the purpose of God. And this kind of reiterates the first point, so I won't belabor it. But in Revelation, we have the nations described in heaven at the future at this future time, so it's logical they have to be reached with the gospel during, the, 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 during history. And his purpose is to declare his glory and draw these nations to himself, and I want to be part of a plan that's going to work. Number 10, because history awaits the fulfillment of the promise. Have you ever read this verse? <clears throat> I know you have. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached, shall be preached, rather, in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. You ever read that verse and wonder what it really means? It kind of sounds like, doesn't it, that until the gospel reaches everywhere, Jesus can't come back? Well, I would highly caution you against taking any verse in the Bible and using it to say Jesus can't return yet. I believe the return of Christ is imminent. Do you? That's, that's a doctrine. We Baptists believe that. He could come back tonight. I'd be fine with that. I was preaching at a church in Colorado a while back, and, and I said, Jesus could come back tonight. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And everybody's nodding their heads and saying amen. And I look over here, and there's a couple of rows of teenagers, and they're all going. And I thought, they don't. I, I, first, first, I kind of had a negative thought, and I thought, you know, when I was a teenager, I wasn't ready for Jesus to come back either. How many of you know what I'm talking about right there? 
I wanted to grow up and have a family. I wanted to, to, to build a life here and serve God. And, but I want to tell you, the older you get, the closer you get to his coming, it's, it's sweeter, isn't it? The more friends you have in heaven, it gets sweeter, doesn't it? So what does this verse really mean? We can't say from this verse that Jesus can't come back yet. So how do we explain this? I'm not sure of the answer. I'm not sure it's how it's all going to play out. But there are three possibilities of explanation here. Number one, we don't know for certain if an unreached people group today was reached at some point in the past. You know, the, the lineage and the ethnicity of tribes is passed all the way down through history. And an example of that would be the Apostle Paul ministered in Asia Minor. And he talked about having covered that whole area with the gospel. But today, Turkey is 99.8% Muslim. So they're unreached with the gospel, but at some point in the past, these tribes and kindreds and tongues, there are people who were redeemed from them. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that with the migration of people across this world, it's happening everywhere, isn't it? People moving from one place to another and people moving from countries where it's illegal to be a Christian, it's illegal to proselytize or pass out tracts or give the gospel. It's all, it's all forbidden, but people leave those countries and go to other places where they can hear the gospel. So maybe with the migration of people around the world, some of these nations are being reached. Another possibility is the end times when the Lord will send out 144,000 witnesses that will finish the job of covering the earth with the gospel. So I don't know what the real answer to this verse is except this. He hasn't come back yet, so our commission isn't over. Our job is not finished. But the, the amazing thing about this verse is it looks like that the story of all of history is hinged on the thread of the gospel getting to all the nations. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you want to be part of that? Number 11 I referred to this verse last night from Habakkuk 2.14 because the earth is not filled with the glory of God. There are about a dozen times the Bible talks about God's glory filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. God has created us to worship Him. And all over this world right now, that worship is being given to false gods. It's being given to idols. And one missions writer said, Missions really is about bringing people into the family of worshipers. That man said, worship, I'm sorry, missions exists because worship doesn't. And where passion for God is weak, passion for missions will be weak. I want God to be glorified, don't you? You know, one of the reasons we ought to be in the Middle East reaching people for Christ is because our God is not receiving their worship. That is the tragedy of missions. I hope you believe that. The earth is not filled with the glory of God, and I'm looking forward to the day when it is filled with His glory. Amen? Last point. Because of the command of Jesus. <clears throat> now, our daughter is 18 years old, and I don't hear this question as much as in years past, but how many of you are parents, and you would tell your children something to do or not to do, and you get a question back? Tell me, what's the question? Why? And what was your answer? Because I said so, <laughs> right? Can I tell you that we ought to be on mission with God? Because he said to. He told us to. 
Five times between his resurrection and his ascension, he gave us a commission. Those five commissions put together make up what we call the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I think he meant all. In Mark 16, 15, he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I think he meant every. In Luke 24, 47, he said, This gospel, uh, the, the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. And I think he means all. In John 20, 21, he said, As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Jesus has a heart for the whole world. And I think he means that we are to go forth in the same manner and for the same purpose that he came to this earth with a heart for the whole world to know the glory of our God and the grace that he offers them. In Acts 1, 8, he said, Ye shall be witnesses all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth. If number 12 isn't enough reasons, I've given you 11 of them before that. Because of the promise, the purchase, the harvest, the laborers, the destiny of the lost, and what that demands of us. Because God chose us to do it, and the early church set the example for us, and and we are accountable to God, and to whom much is given, much is required. And history awaits the fulfillment of this mission, and the earth is not full of His glory, and I want to be passionate for His glory. Because He commanded me to. Don't you want to be on mission with God? Would you bow your heads with me, please?